Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic, The History of the True Cross. This February 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Robert Haddad is the current Head of New Evangelization at the Catholic Education Office of the Archdiocese of Sydney. on the history of the true cross, but I'm not going to limit it to just a history lesson on the cross. When I mean the true cross, I mean the actual cross of our Lord himself, where it is today and how it got there, why it's in the condition it's in, where it's located. I'm going to go through that background, but I'm also going to do a bit of explanation relating to the veneration of the cross, because the, the, the the World Youth Day Cross, which has been going around Australia and drawing tremendous crowds and being a great boost to the faith at local level right across this country. Like today, for example, I saw a series of photographs of the Cross's visit to Orange last week. Huge numbers turned out. Uh, they expected X number and it was two and a half X that came, you know, which is encouraging and we're going to have to defend the Catholic practice of venerating the cross, going up to the cross, embracing it, kissing it, these aspects, because that tends to offend some of our separated brethren who don't understand subtle distinctions in Catholic theology and practice, uh, which are really common sense ones for us, we take for granted. I'm also going to have a look at defending the very concept of Jesus having died on the cross. Now, by great coincidence, yesterday, after I've already prepared this talk, etc., I was going back home from work. I work at the University Catholic Chaplaincy, which is, of course, at Sydney Uni, which is, of course, at Redfern, Chipping Up. That part of the world is an abominable place to work. Um, it's a very difficult place to work. It's it's soul-sapping, it's morale-sapping, it's spiritually-sapping, because no one there... I mean, I'm, I know I'm uh, you know, wielding a broad brush when I say this, but no one there is normal in the sense of... in the sense of believing in God, believing in marriage, being married, staying married, being heterosexually married, having children, being open to life, uh, there are, that everyone is something else besides that. So it's pretty soul-sappy. But I'm, I'm arriving at Redfern for the umpteenth time, and what happens, a fellow notices my cross. Now, I wear this cross because it's distinctive, and I, I've always had a, a love for the, what the Dominicans stand for, what they practice, what they're meant to be spiritually, intellectually. So I'm very proud to wear this cross, but this cross is very useful in Redfern because how many times I notice people stare at it when I walk past them? Uh, because it really does grab their attention, both good people and the opposition party. Right? When I'm arriving at Redfern yesterday and this fellow notices it and turns around, probably in his early 50s, and says, oh, you believe, do you? And I say, yeah, I'm a believer, yeah. And he said, well, you know, have you heard of Jehovah God? And, you know, and we went from there. Well, see, anyway, the poor fellow, thanks be to God, I had a grace at that moment. And for the short while we, we I talked with him, which was only about three or four minutes, I was very nice to him, very patient with him. But I think he regretted opening the discussion because 
he wanted to just focus on the name of God. And I said, well, Jesus gave us his name. Jesus never uses the term Jehovah at all. The names of God given to us by Jesus are Abba, Father. And the name would are to be baptised in the name of God, in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Anyway, but we actually didn't get onto the cross, but I'm going to focus on what the Jehovah Witnesses believe with respect to the cross, what essentially they deny when it comes to the cross, and why they deny it. Because they have a, a, a strong case that needs to be answered, that needs to be rebutted. And I'll help you with that. I'll need a whiteboard texture for that, if you don't mind, if you've got one there, because I like to put on the whiteboard for your illustration. Um, the, the actual Greek words for cross that are in the scriptures and how they argue their case and how we have to uh, rebut it. You might think, well, you know, why are we bothering with this? Well, because cat witnesses are, are, are still very active. We've all met one. And um, I once had a student many years ago when I was in school, maybe this was around the early 90s, 92, 93, and I always gave the students assignments to do in religion. And one day a girl put a picture of Jesus. Uh, she cut it out of a magazine and she had that picture in her assignment. And she didn't really realise what she put in her assignment. When I looked at her, I said, oh, no. And I went back to her and said, yeah, have a look at this closely. What do you think is the problem? The problem is that Jesus wasn't crucified like this in the picture. He was punished like this in the picture. But she didn't notice the difference. And that's what they advocate. They deny the cross as something pagan. And so that when Catholics are using the cross as a symbol for Christianity, we're deceiving the world. We're imposing a pagan symbol and using that to draw people's attention, admiration, veneration, adoration, whatever. Anyway, that's enough for an introduction. The, um, it's now starting to talk proper in itself. We're all familiar with Psalm 21, I hope, or I believe. That's either Psalm 22 in the Ecumenical Bible, but Psalm 21 in an old-fashioned Catholic Bible. We have there King David... Long, long before the coming of Christ, about a thousand years before Christ comes into the world, he, he sees something mysterious in given to him in a vision, and he records the words that have pierced my hands and feet, they have numbered all my bones. Now, in hindsight, we know who that is referring to and what that means. For the Jews over the next millennium, the next thousand years, those words would be very, very mysterious. What does it mean exactly? They did not have any clear idea at all that this was relating to the Messiah and how he would be punished and killed because they didn't necessarily believe that the Messiah had such a mission. We see evidence of that in the New Testament. For example, in John's Gospel, when our Lord talks about, uh, when I'm lifted up, I shall draw all men to myself on the cross. 
That's John 12, 32. And the response of some of the Jews who were listening, who were not necessarily the enemies of Jesus or critical of Jesus, they asked the question, but what does this mean? Isn't the Messiah to remain undisturbed? Which for them, the prevailing view, one of a number of views, is that the Messiah would come into the world and he would be a warrior king type, akin to Judas Maccabeus or King David, and that he would cast the Romans out of the Holy Land, liberate Israel, so Israel would be freed from pagan domination, and Israel would be exalted above all the other nations and be, as according to Isaiah, the light to the Gentiles. That the other nations, the peoples, the pagans, the Gentiles, would come to know the true God through Israel and the Messiah who would be reigning undisturbed until the end of the world. So there's no concept of the Messiah coming and coming just for a short time and being arrested, scourged, crowned with thorns, put on trial, condemned, put to death. That was far away from the minds of anyone. I'm not talking about the heart of heart Pharisees or the enemies of Jesus sought to destroy them. I'm talking about the common, ordinary Jewish scholar, rabbi, faithful, etc. It wasn't certain at all exactly um, the nature of the Messiah's role. In fact, the Jewish scholars in this period had conflicting views reading the scriptures because the scriptures seemed to them to be contradictory as to the Messiah. You know, uh, and some thought that there'll be two types of messiahs, one glorious, one suffering. They couldn't reconcile the apparent contradictions in their eyes. Right? The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 for them didn't relate to the Messiah as an individual, but epitomised Israel. It was a symbol of Israel's trials and tribulations, as Israel, the corporate collective and the people of the Jews and their sufferings on behalf of Yahweh. Anyway, so when we have this prophecy in Psalms and the Jews, as I said, did not have any clear idea what it really meant. Because crucifixion was not a Jewish practice. The Persians practiced it to the east, a form of that type of punishment. But it essentially came into the Holy Land only in 63 BC, after that date, when Pompey and his legions came and conquered the Holy Land, and conquered Jerusalem, etc. Then it became known as a practice. Now, the Romans typically crucified uh, a criminal on a cross which is in the shape of the tower. You don't have another text of that down one? That type of tower, it's working now, it's right on it. Alright? That type of cross. Now, we're familiar with the Roman form of the cross, which would also have a bar, would have an extension up here. But most typically, it was in the shape of a classical tower. The tower's the letter tower, T. Right? And 
that thing. And you're probably wondering, well, where's the place for that sign that they put above Jesus? This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Well, that would have been impaled on top. It, with, in, a spike at the top here, and they would have had what's called the titular with those words on top, like that. Okay? Now, this punishment, this form of punishment was reserved for the most abject and horrible of criminals, and was considered the most detestable um, form of punishment, most horrid form of punishment. Some criminals who were crucified would take many days to die. It was meant to be that way. It was meant to be an agonising and excruciating punishment. And it was meant to take a long time. And that's why when Joseph Arimathea comes up to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus, Pilate shows some astonishment when he's dead already. Because it wasn't really normal or expected or even hope that criminals would die so quickly. It was meant to drag out for days. And the Romans certainly had no hesitation crucifying huge numbers in one go, if necessary. We know from history uh, the revolt of Spartacus and his followers. When that was finally put down, <coughs> the Romans uh, crucified five to 6,000 in one day and put them all up along the Appian Way the road that leads to Rome. So, you can imagine, those people would have been considered as you know, rebellious slaves, revolting against the state, and so it was a proportionate punishment. So, we can understand here, just for a moment, if I'm a Christian in the year 35, and I'm, and I'm putting the crucifixion at the, at the, at the date uh, of April 14, 30, AD 30. So just a few years after Jesus has died, resurrected and ascended into heaven, it would have been, would have been a very strange thing for Christians, even among themselves, to be venerating such a symbol. Because the contemporary attitude towards this, this to crucifixion, it was just something ugly and horrible. It's like me today to try, I'm just trying to put us in the mindset of that period. And I'm not as trying to establish that mindset as the correct mindset we should have now. Far from it. But I'm, I'm just putting us firstly in that contemporary period and then we'll come back to our period. But even for Christians in that time, immediately after the death and resurrection of Christ, it was a very strange thing to look at the symbol of the cross representing crucifixion as something um, noble or pious or sacred. It was, it's like, for example, today if I'm following some cult leader and that cult leader was executed by the electric chair in the United States and I'll venerate that electric chair as a symbol of piety and reverence. Okay? It would have been seen like that in those days. And that's important for us to understand. And opponents of Catholic veneration of the cross actually try and develop that argument and apply it to today. You're being ridiculous in venerating the cross because you're venerating something that was a horrible, ugly form of punishment. 
But that really is not relevant now. Attitudes of 2,000 years ago, uh, which are really sensitivities more than doctrinal positions, uh, they're not relevant for people of today focusing on an event of the past and understanding its real significance. Okay? And symbolism is important. And God, Christ, judges each individual on their motive and their intentions and their purpose. So such an argument really we need to totally discount. It's not to be taken seriously. People will say, don't venerate the cross because the cross was something ugly and horrible. Originally, yes, it was. But things change. And Christianity is always engaged in baptising things and altering its meaning and turning it around. I was listening to the radio yesterday, 2GB, just around before 6pm, and the, the host of the radio program had someone, an expert on Valentine's Day, talking, trying to give us the origins of Valentine's Day. And showing that really its origins were pagan. Because the ancients, Greco Romans, I think the issue was focusing particularly on Romans, February 14th was, uh, uh, they celebrated a fertility festival. And it was the day that they tried to match up couples and that they married. Right? And a lot of lewd things happened. You know? It was and it was a public festival. It was sort of like a feast or a celebration. But of course, there were many things that happened which you know would offend Christian sensibilities. But as Christianity grew in society. And this festival is, is continuing as an annual event, but Christianity is not only rising but predominating in society. There were people who still liked that festival, but the church took the attitude of not abolishing it outright, but changing it, purifying it, changing its ascent, uh, changing it so that it can be legitimised in a Catholic way. There's nothing wrong with getting young people together, meeting each other, and then eventually forming good marriages and good families. So you, you baptise the event, so to speak, purify it. Same with the cross. We can take something that was horrible and ugly and detestable and understanding what Christ did for us and what love is involved for us and what that sacrifice was in the eyes of God how beautiful, how wonderful. He changes for us something ugly into something beautiful. All right. I think, I think it's important to understand exactly the meaning of the cross, even though we all have heard something to explain it in the past. When Christ dies on the cross, in the eyes of God, that is a sacrifice a self-sacrifice, which is so outstanding, so perfect, so infinitely perfect, because it's the action, it's a theandric action, that is the action of God and man. It's an action of a man, a true man, and the new Adam on behalf of humanity, where he 
undoes the disobedience of the original Adam and says, let, my, let not my will be done, but your will be done. So here is a man who's not seeking to be exalted or elevated to the same level of God unjustly as Adam sought to be like God in knowledge, but a man who's in, a true man who's denying himself in order to offer a self-sacrifice to God on our behalf, and that's of infinite merit because it is a it is a divine person. It is a, the person is one person, the divine person is also a true man offering this sacrifice. And that sacrifice is so pleasing to God, infinitely pleasing to God. It is more pleasing to God than all the sins of humanity put together are offensive to God. But to use a natural analogy, imagine all the stars in the sky, in the universe, not just what the ones we can see in the Milky Way, representing all our sins, and we can see them at night. But when the sun comes out, it's so bright, it just blocks out the stars. You can't see the stars during daylight. That's what Christ does with our sins through his sacrifice on the cross. It is an act that's so, it's so pleasing to God, infinitely pleasing to God, it blots out our sins. It's more pleasing to God than our sins collectively are offensive to God. And by the way, I was watching the cartoon, I'm just putting in brackets this comment, I was watching a cartoon on EW10 tonight, which was a kids' cartoon and a Catholic one, and they, without them realising, they made a horrible mistake in the whoever wrote the script made a horrible mistake, an actual heresy in it, saying that we deserve, humanity deserved to be punished for our sins, but God instead punished Jesus in our place. That's a heresy. God doesn't punish Jesus because God never punishes the innocent. Jesus is innocent. What really is happening is that God allows Jesus in the divine plan. The Father is allowing the Son to be punished unjustly by evil men. And Christ accepts that willingly and offers that up as a sacrifice willingly on our behalf, and God accepts that sacrifice on our behalf. So in a sense, there is a transfer of the punishment from us to Christ, but it's not God punishing Christ instead of us. It's God accepting the sufferings and punishment of Christ offered by Him on our behalf. But that suffering and punishment is not inflicted by God. It's allowed by God. It's inflicted by evil men. So this is a subtle point there. But that, that act is performed on this cross. Yes, something ugly and detestable. But Christ, when we look at it in hindsight and understanding what Christ did, what that symbol represents the greatest act of worship in the history of, of humanity and all of creation. That's what it means to us. It's not just an ugly, horrible punishment instrument. It symbolises for us today the greatest act of love and the greatest act of worship towards God the Father and for us that any being could ever offer any time ever. And that's something that Christ has done. We can't do it. 
We can't by ourselves change that meaning, but Christ changes it. Changes that, the, the meaning of that symbol for us. And we realise that in hindsight when we understand the passion, etc. Now, imagine you're there, and I'll put the date again, excuse me, it's April 1430, AD 30, right? You're there, you're an eyewitness to this event. How does, what's happening is that Christ, of course, dies, expires at 3 p.m., okay? It's on the cross from 12 midday to 3 p.m. expired. And they have to wrap up the whole thing quickly because the great Sabbath uh, and Passover is taking place. So we have the Jews have to obviously stop work as soon as it, it gets dark. So Jesus has to be taken down from the cross and everything disposed of very quickly. What happens is that the, the two thieves we know, their legs are broken so they die quickly the same time, and once they're all confirmed to be dead, their bodies are removed, taken down from the cross. The crosses, now remember the Jews had a, a prohibition against touching dead bodies because it made them ceremoniously unclean. And there's no way that the Jews are, who are at this event, who are the enemies of Jesus, allowing themselves, are going to allow themselves to be technically unclean because that would exclude them from temple worship. Okay? So, they're not touching the bodies. The Romans are doing all that. And they don't want to touch the bodies, and they don't want to touch the instruments that touch the bodies. So, the cross, <coughs> the titular, that's the sign at the top, the crown of thorns, the nails, and the spear that pierced our Lord in the right side are all things that touch the dead body of Jesus. So when Jesus is taken away by his followers for burial, the cross and all these instruments are rapidly just collected together with the other two crosses and just dumped and buried in the same pit right near where our Lord was crucified on Golgotha and buried. The reason why, again, is because the Jews would not touch things that touch dead bodies. Okay? had us a prohibition for that, an abhorrence of that. Now there they stay, and then they stay for nearly 300 years. Now, the Christians obviously had an idea where Jesus was crucified. So for the early Christians, that place, Golgotha, was a place of veneration. Of course, the Christians had no external outward monuments to signify that place, because Christianity was a prescribed religion and to worship in public or to gather in public was very dangerous. There were no churches even. There was no dedicated buildings for worship externally above ground in those days either. <clears throat> there was still the hill Golgotha, right? Golgotha, right? Mount Calvary. There's still a hill. In 132, AD 132, the Jews revolt against Hadrian. It's a very serious war, goes for three years. It's known as the Bar Kochba Revolt. The Jews, sadly, misguided. Uh, their chief rabbi, Aqaba, proclaims Bar Kochba as the Messiah figure, so they rise up in revolt against Rome, thinking this is it. The moment has come. 
the Romans ruthlessly crush the revolt eventually. Now, after that, Hadrian passes a series of laws that are aimed at targeting and destroying Judaism. And one of those laws was to prohibit circumcision. Prescribing circumcision, he knows that because he's been informed by his advisors that that's the way to annihilate the Jews as an organised people and religion, etc., etc. But also, Hadrian didn't much distinguish between Jews and Christians. He, were, you know, he just saw the Christians as against, you know, of course, a, a, a threat, even more so than the Jews, a universal threat, but more as a subgroup of the Jews. So Christians were also, in a sense, targeted by Hadrian. Now, Hadrian, compared to other emperors, was very mild towards the Christians. But in one regard, he had Mount Calvary totally leveled flattened and um, he, on top of that he had then two temples to the gods Jupiter and Venus built on top of it. In the words of Jerome this was his vain attempt to try and annihilate the Christian religion and all memory of Christ and the crucifixion. Alright and there it stays in that condition uh, for hundreds of years a couple of hundred years Virtually, exactly, virtually. Um, that's why when you go to the Holy Sepulchre today, who's been to the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem? Oh, there's only one true Catholic in the audience. <laughs> Terrible. Okay, when you go there, actually the Holy Sepulchre as a building encompasses the two sites of Mount Calvary and the tomb where our Lord was buried. Now that's another talk. I won't get, I've already digressed enough. But imagine, here's the Holy Sepulchre as a big building, right? There's a little courtyard in the front, there's big doors here, double doors, you enter. And you go to your right, you climb some stairs, and there is, you know, a very beautiful, Melkite, Byzantine type, standing life-size icons of the crucifixion scene, Our Lady, uh, St. Mary Magdalene, John, St. John, etc., and there's a spot there where a hole where you can actually put your head down and that's where it is believed that the very cross itself was planted. Now you walk up a couple of stairs to get there, which represents Mount Calvary as it was, but it's trying to recreate Mount Calvary because Hadrian had flattened it. And then you come down on the other side and you've got the, the actual recreation of the original tomb where our Lord was buried. And the reason why I say to recreation is actually is because the madman uh, Mullah Hakim, his name was, in the year 1009, 999 years ago, so we're coming up to the thousandth anniversary next year, in his fanatical madness, have the original tomb of our Lord totally destroyed, except the back wall of it. So when you go into it, it's very cramped. Um, it's recreated in some pink type of marble. It's cramped inside. Like at the back, you actually open little double doors. When you open it, what do you have? You have the original back wall. That's all that's left of the tomb. The original tomb of our Lord. But you think, well, where's Mount Calvary here? There's none. It's flattened. Alright? Anyway. Moving on. 
We all know what happened. Constantine comes by divine providence to be emperor and eventually emperor of the whole empire. That occurs in the year 324. Emperor of the West, Augustus of the West, in 312, October 28 to be precise, but eventually emperor of the whole empire after he defeats his rival and brother-in-law, Licinius, and has him executed. Very dangerous to marry into that family. And uh, becomes emperor of the whole empire. Now, in 326, he commissions his mother, or his mother probably asked, and when she asked, you don't say no, um, helped St. Helena, who wanted to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and actually re recover the relics of the Passion. There's a good little book if you want to read. It's Father Paul Stenhouse's book that he produced, came out a couple of years ago. You can go contact Annals and purchase it. It gives you all this history, actually, of all the uh, relics of our Lord's passion and death. <laughs> Only cost a handful of dollars. Uh, anyway, so Delina goes to Expedition 326 with a group of Roman soldiers. They get to work immediately. They demolish the temples of Jupiter and Venus. They excavate. They find everything. They find the three crosses. They find the crown of thorns, the titular, the nails, the spear. Now, which is the cross of our Lord? That's the problem because the titular is detached. It's not actually attached to any of the three main uh, vertical beams. Okay. This is the story that we have. I don't want to belittle it. I believe it. There's nothing else to challenge it. Uh, to discern which was the true cross, the then Bishop of Jerusalem, named Macarius, decided, I'll take all three to the house of this very noble lady in Jerusalem who's dying. And they touched the crosses, each of the beams to her, one by one. And it was the third one when it touched her she was cured of her illness, life-threatening illness. And so that was the one declared to be the very cross that our Lord himself was crucified. What happens next? They did something we wouldn't do today, but they decided, well, this is too precious, obviously. This is the most precious of all relics. What are we going to do with it? Well, they decided to chop it up. Okay? And... Uh, Parts of it are placed in beautiful silver reliquies and was housed with Bishop Macarius in his basilica in Jerusalem. Fair enough? Okay. Now, Jerusalem's important. Other parts are sent to Constantinople. You've got to do that. That's the emperor's city. Okay. The emperor's, Constantinople is, the, is a new city being constructed, and the first city in the world that would be an exclusively Christian city. No pagan temples allowed. And it's the emperor's city, so he's got to have relics of the cross as well. Okay? And, of course, naturally enough, Rome must have relics of the true cross. So, what is sent to Rome to be housed in the what is later known as the Basilica of the Holy Cross, Santa Croce, of Jerusalem in Rome, which is the church that St. Helena herself had commissioned to be built in the year 314 to commemorate her son's victory at Milvin Bridge in 312. That church receives three 
pieces of the cross, approximately six inches each in length. So that, that's where they're distributed. Now, because I'm only focusing on the cross, I didn't read about what happens to the crown of thorns. And the titular I've seen, it's in, I've been to Santa Croce in Rome, so I've seen the relics of the Holy Cross, I've seen the titular. And just to digress again for a moment, when I saw it, I said, this has to be fake. No, and this is just, come on, this is, a, this is just been made up by someone in the Middle Ages and passed off and, you know, made a buck. And I just thought it was just like too um, artificial, recently put together or whatever. But anyway, I held that opinion for about five years, not definitely, but it was my suspicion that it was fake, really, until I saw this documentary on the good old ABC the source of all truth in Australia. <laughs> anyway, they're interviewing this scholar from Oxford who actually investigated this titular. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, this is the first time in my life that the ABC has managed to change my mind. Because this scholar examining, and I can't remember all the finer details, so I apologise for leaving you, in, leaving you in some suspense as to why he comes to this conclusion, but he proved in my mind also that it's absolutely genuine. This is the titular, yeah. not the actual cross itself. The reason it's I thought it was a joke, because all the text in Latin, Greek and Aramaic goes from left to right, when Latin didn't go from left to right, and Greek didn't go from left to right. Sorry, Hebrew goes from left to, from right to left, sorry. Reverse all I said, you know. All the text was going from right to left when Latin and Greek goes from left to right. So I thought, oh, this has got to be fake, you know. But if people wanted to fake something, they wouldn't have faked it in a way that was so obviously wrong. All right? Anyway, we'll go back to the cross. Now, the next momentous event happened in the year 614, when the Persians under cross rose the second attacked Jerusalem, ransacked it, and anything that's nice is taken away to their capital of Tessiphon. Of course, big silver boxes are going to be taken as well. So they take the uh, relics of the true cross back to their home capital there in Persia. This is before the advent of Islam, by the way. Islam was just cooking around the corner. Um, but it's a... These people had respect for what they stole, so they don't defile it, they don't desecrate it. It's kept there until 628 when Crossroads is killed in an uprising and the new, the new ruler in Persia decides to return the relics of the true cross back to Jerusalem, back to the Byzantine emperor, in fact, Heraclitus. Her, sorry, uh, yeah, Heraclitus. Heraclitus, sorry. And he then passes on the relics to the patriarch in Constantinople, uh, Zacharias. That, that is returned on the, the famous day now, well now famous day, of May the 3rd in the year 629. And that's why we have in the calendar that we celebrate the Feast for the Cross on that day, May the 3rd. The other great day is September 14th. That is the, that is the finding of, we celebrate the original finding of the cross by St. Helena. 
So just to put you in the picture there, there are those two important feast days in the calendar. And September 14th, as far as I know, is a universal celebration. Uh, I don't know if May the 3rd is the same significance. Yeah, it's Jim? the first of St. Philip and St. James the Less, um, yeah. Yes, uh, well, the old, old calendar is now back in use, so um, anyway, I, I think I've seen it in the new calendar too, isn't it? May the 3rd. Well, anyway, traditionally it was that day. All right, so what happened? So everything else stays stable for a long time, um, just and I don't know exactly what's happened with the, um, the relics of the True Cross in Constantinople. That, that Father Stenhouse's book didn't mention it. We know that, the, as I've already said, the relics of the True Cross in Rome are still there. Just to move now to um, uh, some symbolic aspects of the cross, if we want to look at it symbolically, and I've already spoken about it in some length, why this detestable symbol originally is no longer detestable, but it speaks a lot to us. Um, you can look at it like this, that it's a, it's a symbol of, obviously, of reconciliation. I don't mean that in, just in the modern overused sense, but remember, what is estranged is heaven and earth. You know, God and man is estranged by original sin. And when you look at the cross, it symbolises, the cross beam represents the earth, flat, and the main beam represents heaven because it's pointing up to heaven, and that they join together, symbolises the reconciliation of heaven and earth that's done through the action of Christ on the cross. Um, Christ himself speaks of the cross in a positive way, even before he gets to it. When he says, if you wish to be a follower of mine, take up your cross daily. One, only one gospel mentions the word daily. When, when it's mentioned in the other gospels, it's the word daily is not there, but in St. Luke's gospel it is. If you want to be a follower of mine, take up your cross daily and follow me. So Christ is there himself speaking of the cross in a, in a very positive way as the road to salvation. Not something detestable. It's the road to salvation. What does that mean? Take up your cross daily. It's all got to do with the new circumcision. Original circumcision, of course, of the foreskin was very important to establish one within the covenant between God and Abraham, as recorded in Genesis 17. If you weren't circumcised, I'm sorry, you weren't part of the chosen people. The Messiah had to be circumcised. If not, he's not part of the chosen people. He would never be accepted as the Messiah. But there's a Christianity comes with a new circumcision. That's firstly, of course, baptism, which is the new rite that incorporates us into the new and everlasting covenant of Jesus Christ. But following from that, circumcision has to be continued on a daily basis, especially us as adults. And the, circum the new circumcision we practice, particularly during Lent, when we're curbing all our appetites, we are affected particularly by a wound called concupiscence. 
We have an appetite, a sensitive appetite, called the concupiscible appetite. There's nothing wrong with that. That is the appetite for pleasure. God made us to be happy, not just in heaven, but to be happy on earth. But because of the wound of concupiscence in the concupiscible appetite, we have a disordered desire for pleasure. And St. John describes the three forms of concupiscence in his small epistle. Concupiscence of the eyes, of the flesh, and the pride of life. Concupiscence of the eyes is the um, uncontrolled desire for material things. You know, there's no billionaire who's satisfied with their billions. All they want is more billions. The concupiscence of the flesh, we know what that is. And the pride of life. We want to be exalted and above all others. We want to, and that leads to us loving ourselves above others and God. This is where we have to take up our cross daily. That translates to circumcision of the heart, where we prune these vices all through the grace of God, not just our own efforts. We're not Stoics, right? We're Christians. We're Catholics. We only do this through the grace of God who moves, gives us, enlightens us and moves us, gives us the strength, and we correspond with that grace to prune these faults in us. That's how we have to take up our cross daily. If we do not, we will be damned. But that's it's as simple as that. The Christian life requires us to combat these concupiscences of the eyes, the flesh, and the pride of life. And we have to take up that cross daily. Otherwise, we can never fulfill the twofold precept of love or commandment of love. Love God above all things and your neighbour as yourself. We can never do that unless we carry our cross daily. Uh, and that was also one of the driving factors behind the Crusades. The Crusades are much maligned. We know what political correctness has done there. Uh, the say Crusade today is to incur the wrath of the world. To say jihad, oh, you okay. In fact, jihad as a word in its origin in Arabic has the same meaning. You'd be shocked perhaps for me saying this, but I'll clarify has the same meaning as circumcision of the heart. Jihad means struggle. And in Islamic theology, it means firstly struggle within yourself. And of course, in the popular sense that we all know, jihad is the external struggle against the external enemy, the infidel. We know more about that part of Islamic theology, external struggle, jihad. But if they're Muslim, they also try and practice a circumcision of the heart as well, and that's jihad internally for them. They're Christians, I know, their name is jihad. Because it means struggle. They changed their name here in Australia to Jacob or something else. Okay. Um, the Crusaders, they carried their cross uh, by going to war to recover the Holy Land and to defend the pilgrims who were going to the Holy Land and to secure the sacred sites so that they will no, not, no longer be profaned as the Holy Sepulchre was in 1009. 
You notice one thing again, another parenthesis here. No one's ever asked to apologise for the destruction of a holy sepulchre. When we mistakenly and horrendously uh, sacked Constantinople in 1204, we've apologised for it, and rightfully so. It was a scandal. Total disaster. Total misguided application of the crusade. Though when you read the full story, there are some mitigating circumstances. But it's still a horrendous act. If we went and ransacked, okay, when we ransacked Jerusalem at the end of the first crusade, there were a lot of horrible massacres. A lot of innocent people were put to the sword. The crusader chronicles themselves record that they were walking in blood knee deep, which is probably, I'm no doubt, a hyperbole, but emphasizing the point. And we have to live with that crime as well. But no one, if we ransacked Mecca and burnt it to the ground, right? Some of us are getting a little bit excited, but uh, if we did that, oh, imagine the outrage. We'll never be allowed to forget it. But when someone else destroys the very heart, the most sacred site in Christianity, oh, 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 they, who cares? It's only superstition anyway. I mean, if we did that, I mean, we would never hear the end of it. Now, but the Taliban were criticised for that too, because especially by the Hollywood crowd, because that's Buddhism is what they tend toward. Oh, they've got competition with Scientology these days. Anyway. In the liturgy we have this prayer, the cross for me is life, as for you are enemy death. Of course it's life. It's life as because I explained to you earlier, it's what God accepted. It's the most perfect act of worship and sacrifice in history on our behalf. But it's also life because when I imitate it in my life, I'm walking the road, the royal road of the Holy Cross to heaven. It's also a death to the enemy. It's a death to hell. It's death to death. Well, okay. It's death to sin first, because when Christ dies on the cross, he conquers sin. When Christ rises from the dead, he conquers the consequences of sin. He conquers death, which is consequence of sin, and he's the firstborn of men. We're the men. Okay? He's risen from the dead so that we will rise from the dead. We all know that. So the cross, some people look at the cross in this like a, for example, like, you can look at it like a dagger that's into the earth, right? uh, putting death to death. Now let's move on to the veneration of the cross. Wherever the cross, for example, back on the World Youth Day cross, wherever the cross is travelling, and always us in our private devotions and liturgical actions, and etc., we kiss the cross. When the cross and icon goes anywhere now, there are hordes of people lining up, swarms of people lining up to kiss the cross. Now, when I take it to Sydney University... I get it at Sydney University, four universities is visiting on March 19. We're going to do the same. But there's going to be plenty of evangelicals, for example, uh, who are going to look at this and they're going to be puzzled. Some rather squeamish, some of them perhaps sympathetic, 
but others thinking this is idolatry, kissing the cross. Um, not because they're taking the Jehovah Witness position necessarily, not because they think that the cross is a detestable, detestable thing. Uh, they have the cross in, as a symbol for them as well. But they can't go as far as actually embracing the cross or kissing the cross. For them, that equates to idolatry. But see how narrow that is, because they don't... They do, okay, this is a talk and a half itself on another topic. What is idolatry? Idolatry is putting any creature equal to or above God. That's what idolatry is. Idolatria. Latria, giving the worship that is due to God to a creature. A statue or a cross or an icon is not an idol simply because it's a statue, a cross or an icon. An idol is anything that causes us to love it equal or above God. So St. Paul talks about love of money being idolatry. Lust for power is an idolatry. Lust for uh, sex, is a, uh, illicit sex, is an idolatry. Loving myself above God is an idolatry. And a, a statue in itself is not an idol simply because it's a statue. An icon is not an idol simply because it's an idol. And neither is the cross. If it's a statue of, of Jupiter and Apollo, it's an idol because it's causing me to love a creature. Well, it's not even a creature. It doesn't need to exist. Jupiter is a god. It's a planet that exists. But it's causing me to love something above the true God. But if I have a statue of Mary or the saint, it's not an idol. Because it's not causing me to reverence or adore Mary or the saints equal to or above God. It's simply a representation to remind me of great creatures who are great lovers and imitators of Christ. It's not an idol. Now, the act of embracing or kissing, is that in itself an idolatrous act? Or the act of bowing, is that in itself an idolatrous act? Not in itself. It can be if it's referred to a creature in the wrong way. Like if I bow down before a statue of Jupiter, that's idolatry, because I'm acknowledging, reverencing a creature as a god when it's, it's no god. What about Esau when he returns and to meet his brother Jacob after many years of estrangement and hatred? And Esau bows down three times before his brother, before he embraces him. Is that idolatry because he bows down to his brother? What's the intention of Esau? It's to acknowledge the authority that Yahweh has given to him. And it's an act of reconciliation with his brother. It's not, it's, it's, you don't judge it in itself. Oh, he's bowing down to his brother, therefore he's idolizing his brother. What's in the mind and heart of, Jake, of Esau is what counts. When you look at Numbers 21 and you read about the incident of the the, the Hebrews being punished for their whinging in Sinai and God sends among them the brazen, the serpents, fiery serpents that bite, that bite them and whoever is bitten is liable to death and they plead to Moses for his intercession and God tells Moses that erect the pole in the desert 
and fashion a statue made out of bronze and put it on that pole. And whoever looks at that pole, that serpent, ugly snake on the pole, you'll be cured. Imagine the Pope doing that. Imagine us at World UK saying, here's this pole, and we're going to put a statue of a snake on it and come and venerate it. What will we be accused of? Right? But they came up and they venerated that image. They obeyed what God said through Moses and they did not die. Was, uh, wasn't that also a towel? And wasn't that yeah. the figurement of the cross? Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's what. That, that certainly is. And we can develop that. That was actually referred to by Christ himself to Nicodemus. If you read chapter 3 of St. John's Gospel, as Moses lifted up a serpent in the desert, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. It was a prefigurement of Christ on the cross. He had a corpus on the, on the tower cross, that was the snake, and a corpus, that's Christ's body, on the tower cross. And whoever came up before the snake was cured of the snake bite, they did not die. That symbolizes the snake bite of original sin. Whoever comes before the cross of Jesus and believes is cured of the snake bite of original sin. Uh, I used to think that, but in, the, in sense, one sense, yes, but in the pagan sense, no, because Asclepius had the similar symbol, and he was treated in ancient Greece as a physician and a healer. Okay, so yes and no, you can do that, you can say that, but the others who would not want to have anything to do with Judeo-Christian beliefs would tend to say its origins are with Asclepius. Okay, but it's interesting with this snake on the pole that it survived for many hundreds of years, even to the time of the prophet Jeremiah, so 6th century BC. And the prophet Jeremiah has it destroyed because the Jews in this tending towards superstition approach this snake on the pole in the wrong way, in an idolatrous manner. Right? So we do see a distinction between the proper veneration of an image and an improper veneration of an image. So with the Catholic distinction appears, uh, it can be drawn out of Old Testament scripture. If we go up to a statue of Mary and call her the fourth person of the Blessed Trinity and the goddess, it's idolatry. So what's in our heart and mind? What are we intending? When we go before the cross and we kiss it, what are we intending? Is kissing in itself, of itself, an act of uh, worship? Latria? So when you kiss your spouse, you're, kissing, you're treating your spouse as a god? Rubbish. When you kiss a picture of someone you love, is that an act of latria? Of course not. When we kiss the cross, Christ, God, know what the person is doing. They're showing love for what Christ they're showing love. That's, that's now a symbol that represents what Christ did for us. And that's what we're loving. And that's perfectly fine. Perfectly wonderful. Meritorious. Beautiful. Now, what about the Jehovah's Witnesses and the cross now to finish up? Try and finish in 15 minutes. Jehovah's Witnesses hate the symbol of the cross. I'll take some extracts from Catholic Answers website. Of course, they say Christ was executed, but as I showed you before, in a punishment state formation, like that. Not the hands outstretched like that. How did the Jehovah's Witnesses come to this conclusion, looking at the Bible? You know they have their own translation of the Bible, the New World Translation. Well, we can quote it tonight. We'll quote it tonight. 
It might be a little bit embarrassing for us. This is the word in Greek in the New Testament from which we get translated by Catholics into cross. Now that represents our S. S when it's put at the beginning or in, in the inside of the word. And that's an S again when it's put at the end of the word. Now this is transliterated into, in English, to stores. That's how we pronounce it. Stores. Now the Jehovah's argue that in classical Greek, stores meant a pole, single pole punishment stake. This was a stores. When I look at this Greek dictionary that I got, it said, storus translates as an upright pale stake or pole. So they seem to be right. Okay? So we're wrong. The talk is over. No, it's not right. It's not as simple as that. Right? But the problem is, that's classical Greek. This is classical Greek. That's not the argument here. In Koine Greek, it was used in equivocal terms. This is a univocal meaning, univocal translation, one translation. Storus in classical Greek meant punishment pole, state. But in Koine Greek, and the same dictionary has in it a second meaning. To the second meaning, meaning the cross. Now, in ancient when you, I have no time to go through them one by one, but if after the talk, you can certainly come up here. Have a look at all these fathers of the church, from the Epistle of Barnabas, Justin Martyr, Renicius Felix, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Pycalaus, Methodius, Lactantius, etc. That's from the second century, early second century to the fourth century. All understood in Koine Greek. That Storus included a tower cross formation like that. We read their writings, they all explain the crucifixion of Christ, all those extracts there. Christ was crucified in this formation, on a tower cross. What is that word, koine? Koine. There are different, like. Is it that? It's more like the colloquial, casual Greek, like Attic Greek. Is the classical Greek, right? The, the intellectual, you know, Attica, Athens is an Attica province, okay? And so the formal, uh, serious classical Greek is, is Attic Greek. Now, Catholic uh, answers in that article try to uh, explain it in these terms, like there's subtle differences between American English and English English and Australian English. Subtle difference. We all know that. Footpath, sidewalk, whatever, whatever. All right. Um, but the author of that article insists that the differences between classical Greek and Koine Greek were even more pronounced. Okay. And the scriptures are not written in classical Greek; they're written in Koine Greek. Now, now I'll give you some some of the evidence that support the idea that in ancient Rome crucifixion was done in the form of a tower cross. It says here, 1968. 
they discovered in, in near Jerusalem in a cave at a place called Givat Ha Mivtar in Jerusalem the remains of a man in his 20 who had been crucified around the year AD 70. They found that his trunk was contorted and that his upper limbs upper limbs were both stretched out, each stabbed by a nail in the forearm. Right? So they were each stabbed by a separate nail in the separate arms. That's, that was one evidence of how the Romans crucified. So they did crucify stretched out like that. Now in about um, in the late 19th century they discovered in Rome on the Palatine Hill a piece of graffiti which I've seen many times in black and white pictures. It's called the Palatine Crucifix. Now it looks like it's graffiti from the second or early third century. I've seen it. It's not depicted in this article, but I can show how it is. I remember it. It's a cross like that, and on the cross is a figure with a donkey's head, donkey's arms, outwards like that. Yeah, I've seen it. Right? Donkey's legs down here. And a figure of a Christian here pointing towards it. And the graffiti underneath it in Greek is Alexemenos worships his God. Right? It's mocking a Christian named Alexemenos for worshipping Christ, the crucified one, and depicting him in the form of a donkey's head in mockery. Okay? So you know, there's another piece of evidence that crucifixion is understood by the Romans was in the form of a T-shape, the towel cross. Now, another piece of evidence that's interesting, the Professor Kurt Allen did some research, okay, first before him, this scholar named, it's not so important, but it's interesting, this French scholar named Jean de Savignac studied uh, uh, some very ancient copies of the Gospel of St. Luke and St. John. Now, last year, this is called the Bodmar Codex. The Bodmar Codex is actually purchased by the, received by the church last year. And it's now in the Vatican Museum. It was owned as a part of a very precious collection and by an individual private Catholic who's now given it to the church. The Bodmar Codex is ancient papyrus leaves from Egypt. The earliest we have, the Gospel of St. Luke and large fragments of St. John. Now, it says here that, okay, I'm reading from here, they include substantial pieces of the Gospel of Luke and John dating from the year 250 around, but I've read elsewhere even earlier than that, maybe up to 100 years earlier than that. In these, the Savagnik found that when the word Storus was written in the contracted form, here's the word Storus, as contained in these ancient manuscripts of these Gospels, in, in the contracted form, the AU is removed, is omitted, and the Tau and Rho are superimposed. Now this is interesting, this is 
pre-Constantine, and whenever the Storis word appears for cross in this copy of the Gospels, they put the tau and the row superimposed, like that. Okay? Representing, because this is an ancient symbol of, of Christ. Like later on in Constantine's time, she wrote two Greek letters, Cairo. The first two letters in the word Christ in Greek were superimposed to form this symbol that you see in church all the time. Right? That became that's as it becomes later, just before Constantine, during Constantine, and post-Constantine until today. This was another ancient uh, way of representing Christ nearly church. So it's two Greek words representing Christ. It's the T for the cross and the row. I'm not sure exactly why, but they did it. But that's indicating Christ crucified on the cross in that form. Now, Kurt Alain broadened this work to include other collections of papyri and found the same experience, or the same phenomenon. Now, to finish off, we'll quote from the um, Watchtower. No, sorry, the, the Jehovah Witness version of the Bible, the New World Translation, which unfortunately gets them in a little bit of trouble. That's not the only time. A last piece of evidence comes from the New Testament. Example, John 20, 25. When Doubting Thomas speaks, the Witnesses' New World Translation gives the verse as follows. Quote, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, plural, two hands, two nails, put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So even in their translation, John refers to hands in plural and nails in plural. The inference is simple. If Jesus was crucified in this form, with one nail going through the both feet, then you can presume that they would have put one large nail through both hands, because the nails were that long, five, six inches in length. They had to suspend the whole body. But even in this verse, as translated New World Translation, it speaks of hands and nails. So two hands, each being nailed by separate nails, which indicates it tends to believe that Christ was crucified in this outstretched form. Anyway, I think we'll finish there. Right, so. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.